A reading from the Gospel of Mark. Jesus began to teach beside the lake again. Such a large crowd gathered that he climbed into a boat there on the lake. He sat in the boat while the whole crowd was nearby on the shore. He said many things to them in parables. While teaching them, he said, Listen to this. A farmer went out to scatter seed. As he was scattering seed, some fell on the path, and the birds came and ate it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where the soil was shallow. They sprouted immediately because the soil wasn't deep. When the sun came up, it scorched the plants, and they dried up because they had no roots. Other seed fell among thorny plants. The thorny plants grew and choked the seeds, and they produced nothing. Other seed fell into good soil and bore fruit. Upon growing and increasing, the seed produced in one case a yield of 30 to 1, in another case a yield of 60 to 1, and in another case a yield of 100 to 1. He said, whoever has ears to listen should pay attention. When they were alone, the people around Jesus, along with the twelve, asked him about the parables. He said to them, The secret of God's kingdom has been given to you, but to those who are outside, everything comes in parables. This is so that they can look and see, but have no insight, and they can hear, but not understand. Otherwise, they might turn their lives around and be forgiven. Don't you understand this parable? Then how will you understand all the parables? The farmer scatters the word. This is the meaning of the seed that fell on the path. When the word is scattered, scattered and people hear it, right away Satan comes and steals the word that was planted in them. Here's the meaning of the seed that fell on rocky ground. When people hear the word, they immediately receive it joyfully. Because they have no roots, they last for only a little while. When they experience distress or abuse because of the word, they immediately fall away. Others are like the seed scattered among thorny plants. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of this life, the false appeal of wealth, and the desire for more things break in and choke the word, and it bears no fruit. The seed scattered on good soil are those who hear the word and embrace it. They bear fruit, in one case a yield of 30 to 1, in another case 60 to 1, and in another case 100 to 1. Amen. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. I am one of your pastors here at Zao MKE Church. 
And we are in the middle of a series called Underground. It's our take, our understanding, our seasons, uh, deep dive into the Gospel of Mark, aided by um, the work of a number of queer commentators and theologians. And this week we are in chapter 4. Now, the passage picked by Reverend Shelby Lewis, who is the one who commented on this particular chapter, the passage picked is a parable. Parables are stories that are meant to provide insight, but also to obscure insight. And that may seem really bizarre, but it's actually really in, fitting, in keeping uh, with the Jesus we see in the Gospel of Mark. The same one who does all these miracles and then is just like, shh, don't tell anybody. This is why we call this underground, because Mark has this theme where Jesus is building a movement, and Mark wants us to know how popular it is. Again, Mark starts the story being like, there were so many people, you guys. He had to get in a boat. There's like huge crowds. This is resonating with people. And yet, there's this theme, don't tell anyone. I'm going to put it all in parables. Only the people who are ready to receive it, only people with ears to hear will get it. And everyone else, it's going to be obscured to them. We're going to keep this underground for as long as possible. And it may be really confusing. Like, why would Jesus do that? Why not blast everything from the rooftops? But it's because Jesus knows that his gospel, his good news, is fundamentally threatening to the status quo, to the people in power. And he's trying to get the word out to the oppressed, to the marginalized. He's trying to get the word out to the people for whom this is a radical shift towards collective power before those powers and empires of the world can come in and squash it. And so, even now, 2,000 years later, a lot of this wisdom is somewhat coded. And it's written, it's shared, it's told in a way that will resonate most deeply with the oppressed, that will be most properly understood by those at the margins, those with ears to hear, those who are metaphorically prepared to receive it. And in this parable, that might be considered the good soil. But in Zhao's community, we have a lot of different metrics by which we try and understand all of this, right? We, we don't think that the gospel is particularly straightforward about a lot of things. We know that Jesus talks in parables. We know that parables are easily misunderstood. We feel that way about the whole of Scripture because we see the way that empire twists it towards its ends, do we not? Like the Bible, the gospel, God, Jesus, these are tools of the empire more often than tools of liberation when they are sort of made available widely. And that is why Mark shows that the true following of Jesus will always feel a little underground, always feel a little bit um, out, out on the outside, always feel a little bit off kilter. Because the truth of the gospel, the truth of the parables is only evident to those who are prepared to envision an entirely different, a radically reoriented world. So Jesus says, I'll tell you in parables. You'll get it. But the people in power, they won't. They're going to they're gonna see something else in this message. But you have to pursue me. And so we have to make choices about how we understand. What are we trying to glean here? One of the questions that we ask is, does this bring life? 
Does our understanding of this text, of this Jesus, of this God, bring life into the world and goodness? We want to cultivate life. That's why we're called Zao. Zao means to be among the living. It's a word we got right out of Jesus' mouth. Jesus says that our God is a God of the living. Because this is God's whole jam. It's like creation, cultivating life. And this parable, this metaphor about bringing up new life, that's God's whole shtick. Behold, I am doing a new thing. I'm bringing life where there wasn't life before. God creates and brings life out of chaos or even from death. So when we think of God bringing life, what comes to mind? Now, I know it's hot in here. And I know that y'all are a little in like a, like a heat coma. But I'm going to need you to talk to me today. So when you think of God bringing life into this world, what do you think of? And I want you to shout it out. Anything? Life? Light. Yeah, bringing light, bringing life. What else? What are the ways God brings life? Joy. Hmm? Peace. Baby Jesus, all right, bringing life right into a human body. What else? Let's get concrete here. What life is God bringing into existence? Connecting with other people, community. Anything else? The stories we tell about God bringing life. We have the resurrection of Jesus. We have the incarnation of Jesus. We have Lazarus. We have people healing from near-death experiences. We have the Genesis creation story, the garden. God is a master crafter of life. Now, we human beings, we tend to center ourselves in every story. We think of human life, and we think of ourselves as the center, the epicenter of what life means. So I want to back us up a little bit to creation and talk about biomass. So biomass um, is living mass, living matter. So when we're talking about biomass, we mean in all of God's good, beautiful creation, biomass is that which is, that has mass, that is matter, that is living. So in terms of living matter, how much do you think is us? Here on this planet, all known life in the universe, just a quick question, do you think there's more plant life or human life? Plant, right? And it's by like kind of a lot. Plant life makes up 82% of biomass. 82%. 82% of what God created when God was like, let there be light, let there be life, I'm going to make all this happen. 82% plants. So what? That means that we're only like 18% of life on this planet? <laughs> no. Oh, no, no. Because another 13% is bacteria. 13% of biomass is bacteria, y'all. Another 2% is fungi. That's right, we're beaten out by mushrooms by like a lot. A handful of other percent are all kinds of microbes. And animal biomass is just 0.4% of life. Not even human, animal. And I hate to break it to you, most of those are bugs. About half are bugs. A third is fish. So how much of that is human life? About 4% of animal biomass 
is human life, which means that about 0.01% of all biomass on this planet is human. And we think that life means us. Hey there, main character syndrome. Based on biomass alone, God has created a life about plants. So maybe if we want to understand what it means to be among the living, we should start there. And luckily, this scripture is filled with plant metaphors. The Garden of Eden, the garden in Revelation. It begins and ends with a little blooming ecosystem. In the middle, we've got all these teachings, the mustard seed, the parable of the sower. The Bible is filled with teachings about what it means to be alive from the perspective of plants, the vast majority of life in God's creation. If you want to understand life, you need to understand plants. And you guys, I do not understand plants. <laughs> I am somebody who kills houseplants. It's really bad. It's really bad. Now, luckily, it's not like a one-to-one -one metaphor, so it's not like I'm going around killing human beings by dehydration and neglect. But uh, we, we do need to learn spiritually what it means to be alive from the vast majority of life around us, which is plants. And I think that it's worth noting that people like me are often so alienated from the earth, from the land. I think it serves evil. It serves the devil for me to be so disconnected from the world around me that not only do I think I'm the main character, but I actually don't even know how to tend the basic components of life beyond humanity. It makes me think that humanity is the only life on this planet, and it helps me to completely misunderstand what it means to be alive. Now, our theology needs to reflect God's intention in creation, putting us in relationship with all of this beautiful, non-human biomass. I was recently having a conversation with a couple community members about heaven, that some of the spaces and communities we've come from have made heaven seem like it's completely disconnected from some of the life that we actually have known and loved and treasured on this earth. In this example, it was dogs. No dogs in heaven because they don't have souls. No plants in heaven, I imagine, because surely they don't have souls. Human beings are the only ones with souls. So disembodied souls is all that we care about in the new heavens and new earth. That heaven, as we've been taught, is our disembodied souls out of relationship with 99.99% of created life. Because that doesn't matter, does it? In that picture of heaven, there is no garden. But in the beginning, in the beginning when all was well and right, the metaphor we have for what was intended is a garden. And in the end, the promise of what is to come, the promise of all things made right, is a garden. A tree by a running stream not disembodied human souls being self-important and talking amongst ourselves. What would heaven be like without the garden? Why would eternal life have no plants? Nothing for us to care for or tend or cultivate. Nothing for us to depend on. 
No interdependence at all, just individual souls who passed their test and got their ticket in. Doesn't that heaven sound conveniently individualist and like pretty American and somehow anti-queer and really white? All of these supremacy cultures have influenced even our fantasies about what salvation is. If we want to know what eternal life is, we need to know the conditions of life in God's good creation. And so God asks us to consider metaphors and parables and stories over and over again that center plant life and what we can learn from plants. So the first lesson of plant life as I understand it is darkness. It is to take a seed and bury it in rich, fertile darkness. And that works against a lot of what we've been taught. Our fear of the unknown combined with anti-blackness in our culture has robbed us of the understanding that we need darkness. Darkness is potential, it is possibility. Darkness is the beginning of all things, of all life. Reverend Shelby Lewis, the queer theologian who wrote this week's Mark commentary, put it this way. The seed needs darkness as much as it needs light. And so it is with faith itself. The primordial darkness of Genesis and the nurturing darkness of the womb, representing all that is, has been, and all that is yet to come, is echoed every time we plant a seed in the ground and allow it to take root. Darkness is the home of possibility, not terror. There's that beautiful metaphor that I see so often in the streets on signs. It says, they tried to bury us, but they didn't know we were seeds. Seeds are a central metaphor of Jesus's, about exponential growth, about yielding more than you had to begin with, about cultivating yourself, cultivating your community, cultivating love, and seeing this exponential growth from something that felt so small into something that spreads like uncontainable wildfire. This need for darkness, it speaks to our physical needs, water, warmth, nutrients, sun. But all those needs begin in the life of a plant with darkness, rest, and protection. What else? What else do we learn from plant life? From the garden. Well, the garden is, it is cultivated, it is natural, it is a mix of the two, but it is a garden, not a farm. It has biodiversity built right into it. Our instinct, our human instinct toward life, not only cultivating life, but sustaining life, is about efficiency and uniformity. Even in our efforts to save the planet, even in our efforts to say, let's have the most efficient crop system so that we don't deplete this planet or fill it with too much carbon, our efforts there are towards what's called monocropping, which means that you take a field and you strip it of everything else and you plant rows and rows and rows of wheat or corn or soy. You have one crop, monocropping, and it's very efficient for 
a single season. It's very easy to do that uh, kind of farming with mechanical tools and at a commercial scale, which is the only way that we have in our system to support lots of people at this point. And what it does is it depletes the nutrients in the ground. It requires tons of chemical intervention so that other things don't grow there. And ultimately, you have to do a lot of very hard work to keep everything the same. It works fundamentally against the mechanics of life. And again, not a gardener, but what little I do know is that y'all spend a lot of time weeding. <laughs> because life wants to crop up. Life wants to be diverse. Life wants to hold many possibilities in one space. And anytime we are trying to exclusively limit, to say there is only one kind of life that is allowed here, there is only one way to be alive here, we are working against the fundamental mechanics of life. We are monocropping. We are creating a monoculture. Therefore, it is death and destruction that tries to create uniformity, that strips us of our biodiversity, the different gifts that we bring, that says you must all look and act and be the same. Anytime we are all supposed to be the same, we are capitulating to the mechanics of capitalism, extraction, and death. Because a big sign of the thriving of life is biodiversity. And that creates the conditions for new life and longer lasting life. There are other philosophies of farming. One is called permaculture. This envisions gardens and, and communities that are teeming with life, but different kinds. Not efficient rows of a single crop, but plants spilling into, onto, and over one another, crawling with insect life, animal life roaming the garden to spread seeds and fertilize. Not only do these beings share the space, share the garden, but they actually depend on one another because they form an ecosystem they are interdependent on one another. The way they take and give isn't zero sum. In fact, it cultivates more and more, more life, more potential, more possibility, more biodiversity. We can learn from plants that life is interdependent as it ought to be, as God created it to be. God did not just create us, God created an ecosystem and asked human beings to tend it. And we remember that part because we're very self-important that we were asked to take care of it. But what we don't realize is that God commanded the earth to take care of us also. We conveniently forgot that that's how ecosystems work. We would literally not have oxygen to breathe if it weren't for the plant life that God created. We need oxygen and we breathe it in and we exhale carbon dioxide. Plants need carbon dioxide and essentially breathe out oxygen. How much more interdependent can you get? Breath, that central metaphor for life in the creation story, for the Holy Spirit in the creation story, for that which animates us, animates us and makes us alive, is provided by plants and provided by us back to the plants that we are called to care for. We breathe for and with. The trees, the trees breathe for and with us. We are interdependent as life ought to be. 
But it's really hard to commercialize that, is it not? It's hard to commercialize a biodiverse, independent, I'm sorry, interdependent ecosystem the way you can a field of corn. You need to have relationship for this life to thrive in a garden. It's personal. It's relational. We have some recent learning about natural forests. We thought that trees competed for sunlight, and they do. They they grow as tall as they can or however they can out to the side, wherever they need to be to gather sunlight. And so we thought, great, all the trees are out for themselves. They're each trying to get the most sun, the end of the story. But that's not the end of the story. They actually collect the nutrients. And it turns out that there are these huge root systems that actually transfer nutrients between systems of trees. Trees, systems, relationships that we now understand to be a form of plant family. Trees are relational. Trees collect what they need and share it among a set of related trees. Plant life is relational. Now, we know God is relational. We got that bit right, at least in the Trinity, right? That God is not by God's self, but God by nature is in relationship. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That God created us to be in relationship with us. But there's one final lesson that I think we have the hardest time with. Lesson is the hardest. So hard that God made sure not to make it just central to plant life, but also to human beings. And in scripture, and in Jesus. The last thing that we need for life to thrive is death. It's decay. The soil which gets depleted by offering itself to new life needs to be replenished and can be at the end of a life cycle. Death and decay, which creates fertile ground for new life. This is so scary to us. So scary, because we are trying to pursue life, right? And how do we pursue life when there is death in the way? We should just hold off death as much as possible. The way towards life is away from death. But remember our non-binary Jesus? Remember our Jesus who loves a paradox? God created a life cycle, this is non-linear. This is non-binary. It actually is a give and take. And the way towards life is through death over and over and over again. Death is a necessary precursor to new life, to hope, to resurrection. This is so scary to us that Jesus knew he had to lead the way. He's like, you're going to watch me. You're going to watch me die. And you're going to watch me resurrect on the other side into new life. Now, we know that some things must end, but we have this fantasy of immortality, and I think that's what we're seeing reflected in this disembodied soul idea about heaven, because we're not picturing eternal life. We're picturing our fantasy of immortality. Those things are very, very different. 
Our fantasy of immortality is stagnation. It's like a giant pause button that we can keep on doing what we're doing forever, that nothing needs to change. But life is change. Life is movement. Life is a cycle. Eternal life is about bringing new life always and letting those things that need to die, die. We need to lay down what is ready to die every day, over and over, into the next generations. That gives creation possibility. It creates the conditions for life. Reverend Lewis puts it this way. She says, the most nurturing soil is made nourishing by decay, the death of what no longer serves us, including dead names, tradition, language, and self-concepts which we have outgrown, that can ultimately bring us new life. We long to cultivate life, cultivate the conditions for life. This is what Jesus is calling us to. And we have to do that beginning in the darkness, envisioning and creating the conditions for biodiversity, for interdependence, for relationship, and for death and decay that brings new life. We read the parable of the sower and we're often invited to think about it in an extremely individualistic way. Which soil am I? But we cultivate or undermine the conditions for life, the conditions of our soil as a community, as a culture, in our partnerships, our friendships, as a church, because we are a biodiverse, interdependent, relational body. And so we are tasked, yes, with self-reflection, but also with collective reflection. How are we looking to the plants? How are we cultivating a garden? How are we stifling life or clinging to our fantasies of immortality? How can we look to one another and to the majority of life on this planet to see the plan that God has for us and the hope of cultivating the kind of darkness, the kind of diversity, the kind of death and decay that brings new hope and new life. The final lesson from this parable, and one that I take a lot of comfort in, it's actually not about us. Our God is a collaborative God. That's why God isn't just snapping their fingers and making stuff appear. God is cultivating in the material. God is using God's relationship with us to bring new life in. But a really important takeaway from this passage, where the sower is planting seeds, is that God is not evaluating who is the good soil or where is the good soil. God is not limiting the possibility of healing, of growth. Because on any given day, you might be feeling good, you might be feeling rocky, your community might be thorny, or it might be fertile. But no matter what, God's going to keep planting those seeds. God's going to keep throwing those seeds like they never run out. The good news, the hope, the potential for life, it never runs out. And what we are called to do, create the conditions for life, this is our call, but our gardener will never give up on us. 
and will continue to pour potential and hope and possibility into every kind of soil we are able to get out of bed in the morning with. Let us look to the plants, let us look to one another, and let us rest in the promise that our God is always, always planting new life. Will you pray with me? Creator of all things, may we open our hearts to the vast majority of those things that you have created. May we take joy in life beyond our self-centered imagination. May we learn what life truly is by connecting with the life that is all around us. Give us hope and let us rest in your promise that you are there with us planting, sowing, cultivating, and that it is our joy and pleasure to move through whatever comes into new life. Amen.